Uh, good morning to you. I'm Dave Mitchell. And uh, this morning at about 3 o'clock, I got an email message from Eric Wakeling, who was supposed to be standing here doing this uh, instead of me. And he told me that he was sick. And then he went on to describe what only can be described as TMI. And so I'm going to spare you uh, the details. So he couldn't be here, but I'm certainly glad to be here and glad to slap together something at the last minute so we can uh, share together. <laughs> Christmas time is a, a great season, and often at these time, this time of the year, or even, frankly, at many times of the year, there are times when God divinely intervenes in our lives in ways that we wish He wouldn't. I don't know about you, but I'm walking with the Lord for a long time now. And just to be very honest and candid, there are times when I would say, God, you know, I've heard enough from you. Please, how about a little peace and quiet for a while? Please don't insert yourself in something in my life. Because sometimes when God divinely intervenes in our lives or doesn't intervene in a way that I would want Him to, frankly, it's very troubling. One of the great examples of that just here recently, and I've grown to really respect uh, Kay and uh, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church who are in many ways doing such a great work and reaching just tens of thousands of people in ways that, that God has clearly had His hand there to, to reach and bring people and to know Jesus. One of the things that happened to them was two years ago, their son Matthew took his own life. And those of us who are parents, you know, we cannot fathom what that must feel like for them. And I sent an email out this week, and I encourage you, if you don't get that, uh, you might want to take a look at that. If you don't normally read it, you might want to read this one, because I cite from her some of the trauma of what it is like for her to go through Christmas now. And she wrote a great little blog about that just this last week. I just want to read a couple of lines that she wrote about her experience. She said, by and large, Americans are uncomfortable with such raw emotions perhaps especially coming from a pastor and his family. As a pastor's kid, which she is, and a pastor's wife, which she is, I've learned about the walk-on-water syndrome that pastors and their families are expected to keep doubt, struggle, grief, and anger to themselves lest anyone think that they are less than perfect. May I gently point out that we are not superhuman or above pain as none of the biblical heroes are. And she talks about the trauma of reliving the death of her son and the Christmas cards that come to her that pay no sympathetic attention to the deep-seated needs that she's feeling. The Christmas cards are simply, Merry Christmas, here's what our family is doing, God bless you, period. No recognition of the pain that she is going through. And she writes a little then towards the end, It may seem counterintuitive, but it's possible to keep grief and yet experience the joy of the Lord. In fact, it's the jo Lord's joy that enables me to keep choosing to engage life and ministry even as I live with a broken heart. And whether you're living with a broken heart or you're experiencing the deep grief or the joy of the Lord, one of the things that happens is that God somehow works in His will uh, mysteries where He divinely intervenes and inserts Himself in our lives in ways that we don't understand. Or what God will do is this. God will not divinely intervene in lives and situations where we wish that He would have. Think about Matthew's life, their son. Couldn't God have sent a myriad of angels into that room when He took that gun? Couldn't God have divinely, by His Holy Spirit, convicted them in His art 
so that he would change his mind about the decision that he had made to, ex- uh, to end his own life. Why did God not divinely intervene in that situation, whereas in other situations we see God very purposefully and powerfully inserting himself in other people's lives situation? Where we wish God would divinely meet us in that moment. And so what we are going to talk about this morning are those divine interventions of God. And sometimes when God does not intervene the way we wish he would, and we're a little troubled about what God is doing. I'm reading through the Psalms now, and I read through the Psalms, and I read through what David writes. David writes things that I would never have the nerve to say to God. What David writes to God is, God, where were you? Why weren't you there? Why didn't you help me? God, are you silent? I feel very distant from you. Why do I feel as though you're non-existent in my life? Why are you silent? Why aren't you hearing my prayers? David has this boldness before God and then comes all the way around, but nevertheless, Lord, I will trust you. And there are moments in lives, if you're walking with the Lord, where you will feel that. I know I do. And it's troubling. And so this morning we want to talk about a man that is very troubled by a divine intervention of God in his life, where his life, frankly, would have been a whole lot easier if God had never shown up. And that man is Joseph, the father of Jesus. Let me read the text that we're going to look at this morning. And the outline you have in your bulletin, if you refer to those, is the one that would have been here, but I'll let Eric preach it in a year from now. But in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 is a story of the genealogy of Joseph, the first 17 verses. So if you take your time to go through that, you will see that Joseph came from the line of David. But then God is going to divinely intervene himself into Joseph's life in, in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, is going to divorce her. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin till she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're going to learn something this morning from Joseph's life. And let me just repeat something I said last week about texts like this that seem very distant from you and from me. Like I've never had the experience of a dream where the God spoke to me and told me that my wife is going to be a virgin, give birth to a child. Kind of beyond my experience. So there are things in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, but many times in the New Testament, the narratives of the Gospels, where God shows us a temporary practice that we can learn from so that we can draw from it timeless principles to live with today. So I want to draw from this passage, not the temporary practice and try to break down the virgin birth, but I want to draw from it the timeless principles that still are relevant for the story that Joseph experienced can be the story that we can experience. And here are the two things I want you to take away from this message. Number one, there will be those times where God will test us to reveal our faith. 
There will be times where God will test us to reveal our faith. And then secondly, there will be times where God will teach us to deepen our faith. So we're going to learn that God will test us to reveal our faith and God will teach us then to deepen our faith. Let me break that down a little bit more. God will test us to reveal our faith. We learn in verse 18 this, that now the birth of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. One of the things that we learn that God is going to reveal about his faith is that when God tests us to reveal our faith, he will challenge the relationships in our lives. And we need to learn to have that patient endurance to let God complete the work that he's doing in the test. The test is this. Joseph and Mary, you go back in time to the Hebrew marriages of those days, they had arranged marriages. Moms and dads would come together like Mary's parents, Joseph's parents. They met and say, you know what? We're both from the line of David. We got good genes in our background. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could have Mary marry your son Joseph? And Joseph's parents would say, yeah, it would be great to have Joseph marry into Mary's life as well. She's a sweet and wonderful young girl, teenage girl probably. We think that would be a beautiful thing. And so the parents begin then to arrange marriages. And I would say parenthetically right now that now that I'm married and old, I don't care anymore, but now I believe it would be wonderful if we could go back to the arrangement of marriages because I'm an old guy now. I know a whole lot more than the teenage kids that are looking to get married. And I mean that respectfully. But when you've lived longer and known more people, I think it would be a beautiful thing for parents to arrange their marriages. You know, I've been looking at so-and-so family. They have a wonderful little girl. And I think that she could make a beautiful bride for you someday. I've done a little background on their history and their background, their finances, and I think that there's something very suitable for you. And we do all that beautiful assessment. I mean, before you get a job, you've got to go through all this rigmarole to get a job. But married? Oh, yeah, just go ahead and marry him. We're not doing near the... So anyways, I think someday, someday I'm willing to set the pace that we begin to arrange marriages together. And then once they get married, all you've got to say is just learn to love them. Learn to love them. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But that's what they did with Mary and Joseph. And here is how that works. So Mary and Joseph, they enter into a contract. And once they enter that contract, they are husband and wife. For all intents and purposes, they are husband and wife. And then what happens is that for one year, they live in their respective homes. Why do they live in their respective homes? Joseph in his home, Mary in her home. So that in that one year period of time, they can prove their faithfulness and their purity. And uh, what would happen that, that maybe they kind of get tired of waiting and they sort of meet up behind the, the, the home in some of the little shepherd's fields somewhere and they do something they shouldn't do and lo and behold, she gets pregnant. Well, we want to live for, together for one year. We want to make sure you are not living in impurity or with some other person that may come into your life as well. So that one-year waiting period is what happens. And then once that one-year waiting period to prove their purity occurs is now exhausted, then the groom goes to the bride's home and they have this big procession, this big party, and the groom then brings the bride to his home that he has built and prepared for her, and they consummate their marriage. And frankly, it's a spiritual picture because Jesus is our groom, he is now, we are in that purity time. Second Corinthians 11 says that we are like to, to remain like a pure virgin. That's what he says. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus will come back someday and he will then take us to his home that he has prepared for us. John 14. 
for I go to prepare a place for you. So the Hebrew marriage is a beautiful portrait or metaphor of our spiritual marriage with Jesus. So we want to remain pure, waiting for Jesus to come get us, take us to his home. So Joseph is in that betrothal period where there are now husband and wife, that one-year waiting period. And then suddenly word comes to him. Before the dream, before the revelation from God, a word comes to him, Mary's pregnant. Now what would you think if you're engaged to a beautiful young woman, you have a contract relationship with her, and you suddenly discover that she's married, and then she says, well, let me explain to you, Joseph, what happened. You see, the Holy Spirit came and he impregnated me, and so now I have a baby. Would you say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. That's an amazing thing. You know, and it happened to you too? Wow, that's great. You know, it's kind of going around. No, no that's, not what, that's not how it plays out. Joseph is going through this process of understanding. God, what in the world are you doing? I was this quiet little... You never see Joseph speak in Scripture. He is the quietest man in Scripture. He never says a word. So he's this quiet carpenter working with his hands, strong, silent type. He's just trying to be faithful. He's a righteous man. God tells us he's righteous. And then suddenly discovers that his, his fiancée, his wife, is, is he should, she should be properly called in, in their parlance, she's pregnant. Now I've got to trust God in ways that I never had to trust God before because God inserted Himself in my life. And if God had left me alone, we just have this sweet little quiet marriage and we get married and we have kids and we just have a quiet little life. But God had to come along and insert His divine intervention in my life in ways that makes life, frankly, harder. And it's harder to be a believer than a non-believer because God is constantly inserting Himself into our lives to challenge us, to test us, to test our faith to reveal it. And sometimes it affects relationships and sometimes it, it uh, leads me to the biblical understanding of what God is trying to do. And so He will test to reveal our faith so that it will challenge relationships and it will also help me to understand how much I want to obey God's Word. And I may not want to obey God's Word when He's testing me. But notice what God says in His Word in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And so Joseph is weighing out his mind, what does God tell me to do when my wife is found to be unfaithful? Because at this point, he's thinking, Mary has hooked up with another man. He has no idea that the Holy Spirit has impregnated her. He believes that she has been unfaithful with another man. So now Joseph is thinking and considering his mind, what do I do? He goes through Scripture. He knows that Deuteronomy has been written, and in Deuteronomy it says, one choice is that you stone her. It says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with a woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. You know, if God was still living by that law today, we'd be having a whole lot more funerals than we have today. If there is a virgin who, if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, this would be Mary's case, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The gate of the city was the business end of things. It was where the civic center of the, of the business life of the community. So you take her to the gate to the civic leaders and stone her to death. That's really, really harsh. So that was one option Joseph had. He chose the second option. In Deuteronomy 24, he turned the page and he goes, yeah, I'm not sure if like that. Let me try option number two. When man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out from her house, Joseph says, okay, I'll do that, God. I love this woman. I know it's arranged, but I love her. I want her to be a righteous man and a righteous 
husband or righteous father someday. But God, your word tells me this is what I have to do, so I will do it. God will test us to determine if I'm going to live in obedience to the scriptures. He will test us. Are you going to remain faithful? What I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey that scripture. I don't want to have to do that. But God, that you tell me to do it, I will do it. God will test us to reveal the nature of our faith. Will we remain faithful and patiently endure? Will we remain obedient to what God's word tells us to do? If you're going through a testing, I hope that you pass that test. James puts it this way. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can encounter various trials and the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let the endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word various trials, the word trials, it's used, it's a Greek term that's used of a bird that is jumping out of its nest and it's trying to work its wings for the very first time in its life. And he's falling down, gravity's pulling him to the earth and suddenly he begins to flap those wings and he says, Wow! The wings are holding me up. I'm not going down so fast. I may still go down, but at least it slows the impact. And that's what the word trial means. It's like God pushes us out of the nest and we begin to learn what's so... uh, I don't want to be too cheesy about this, but the wings of faith of holding me up through the trial. That's what James is saying. I want you to exercise these wings of faith that God will help you patiently endure it. And that's to Joseph. That's to us. And if I do that, notice the results. You'll be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. We all want to lack in nothing. We're always trying to buy things so we lack in nothing. Get a better job so we lack in nothing. Have a better boyfriend, girlfriend, grades, so we lack in nothing. Well, God says, if you patiently endure and you spread your wings and you trust me, I'll get you there. I'll do it. I'll make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. It's a sweet place to live your life. And you become blessed. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Eugene Peterson, a contemporary author, has written about these trials, and he puts it this way. Suffering is not evidence of God's absence, but of God's presence. It is our experience of being broken that God does His surest and most characteristic salvation work. There is a way to accept, embrace, and deal with suffering that results in a better life, not a worse one, and more of the experience of God, not less. God is working out His salvation in our lives the way He has always worked it out in the place of brokenness, at the cross of Jesus, at the very place where we take up our cross. God comes along and in Joseph's life there is this brokenness in his heart. He is thinking to himself, my wife has been unfaithful. I've got to be obedient to God's word, but I love her, Lord, but I want to obey you, Lord, and have this tension of loving the woman that is the chosen one for you, but also being obedient to what God says. And we are torn in our hearts because we feel like we want to do this, but we know that we should do that. That's a painful place to be. And it's a testing of our faith. We're going to find out what kind of faith we have. Do we have faith that sort of wanders away and becomes weak in the midst of the battle and we disobey God's Word? Or do we have faith that is strong and proven, tested, refined, and say, God, here's what I feel like doing, but here's what I know I should do. I will obey what I know I should do in spite of how I feel. 
That's a tough place to be. Jesus and Moses both went through that. Another time we'll go through that. But I wanted to get to this second point, that God will teach us to deepen our faith. First of all, God will test us to reveal the kind of faith we have. But once I go through that, if I hang in there, He's going to teach me. He's going to start piecing it together. Help me to come to grips with what He wants me to know. And what I'm going to learn are two things. I'm going to learn about God's power. I'm going to learn more about God's power when I need it the most. That's what Joseph learns next. So he's hanging in there. Okay, I'm going to obey. Deuteronomy 24. Send her away. That's what he's doing. God says, Joseph, man, I'm so proud of you. You're so faithful to me. You are a righteous man. That's why I want Matthew to write in there, you are a righteous man, because you're obeying me even though you're battling how you feel about this whole thing. And so he obeys. And so God says, okay, let me help you understand now. Let me soften the blow. Here's what I want you to know. I'm a powerful God. And so God reveals to him in this dream these words. But when he had considered this, considered sending her away as a divorce, not stoning her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is saying, wow, I heard rumors of that. Mary might have said something about that. I didn't know that I could believe her when she talks about this whole concept of a virgin birth. It's kind of a wild explanation for her pregnancy. But God, if you're going to say it to me, I'm going to I'm going to consider that very, very seriously. So he considers his options. Now, I, I want to be very clear. When he says, I con- he considered these things, we consider things when we go to the grocery store. I consider whether I should get Cheerios or I should get uh, shredded wheat. Uh, when I was thinking about getting a motorcycle, I'll consider, should I get a Honda? Should I get a Harley? Well, those are, those are not hard choices to make. Of course, you get a Harley. Crazy. And so you have those things, and no offense to the Those are considerations. That's not what Joseph is doing. Let me take you into this word, considered. This word shows something raging in his soul. The word considered is two words, in thumos. In meaning in, I am. Thumos means strong feelings, passion, furious, fuming. Joseph has heard that his fiancée, his wife, if you will, is pregnant. He thinks she's been unfaithful. He's got to obey Deuteronomy, send her away, don't stone her. He is considering that. That's what he's feeling. It is not a choice between two, cheer, uh, between two cereals. It is a choice between obeying God or loving her. And he doesn't want to send her away. So he is feeling furious. He's furious. He's fuming. He's raging in his heart. That's what Joseph is doing. He doesn't say it, but Matthew interprets it with this word, considered this, and he helps us then to come to reality that this is not some stoic man that is just sort of sitting, okay, God, you know, okay, I'll send her away. What's the big deal? I uh, wonder what's, uh, what's happening tomorrow. No, this guy is raging inside. He's fuming. He's furious. He might be furious with Mary. Why did you get me in this, posi- this position? He might be furious with God. God, I've been faithful, righteous, holy, faithful, understanding Isaiah. But this is how you treat me now. By allowing my wife to cheat on me like this? This is crazy. I don't want to go along with this. He's furious. So he considers that. But he might have remembered something Isaiah had said. Isaiah 700 years before Joseph wrote this. 
Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxiously looking about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. God's power comes. He's learning that's the Holy Spirit that's making this possible. God's power. Not Mary's infidelity. God's power. He's learning as God teaches him that it's God's power that will get him through this thing. Not his own. Not his own smarts and talent and gifts. God's power does it. So he learns more about God's power. Let me, let me give you a little real practical, get away from the heaviness of the virgin birth and the Holy Spirit and the dream world. Here's how practically this can play out. One of the things I enjoy doing early in the morning now that it's dark and cold, and I hate dark and cold, is riding my bicycle. It makes me feel like a little kid again. So I ride up Santiago Canyon Road early in the morning, and sometimes some of you see me there and honk at me because you recognize me because I wear the same thing every day, and boy, do those clothes stink. And so I ride out there, and one of there's this guy that I sometimes often will connect up with. I'll see him pretty regularly. And I've ridden with him before, and I've shared about him before. I call him Sam. He's a pilot of a, a major airlines and flies the big flights like the Shanghai, those big seven, triple seven jets. So we've talked off and on over the last number of months many times. I've shared the gospel. I've tried to share literature. And, you know, I don't, blah, I don't want nothing. Very self-sufficient, self-reliant guy. So we hooked up again this uh, last Monday. Came up right alongside him and, hey, how you doing? Hi, Sam. Yeah, yeah. And so we're riding along. Say, hey, what's going on? How's things? And he said, oh, yeah, airlines, we're, we're negotiating new contracts right now. He says, the, the airline that I fly for uh, went bankrupt a few years ago. And he told me that I lost $1.2 million of my, my funds when it went bankrupt. $1.2 million. Most of us don't even make that much in a year. And he lost it all. And he's about 60, so he's a young guy. For some of you, that makes sense. And he says, I only got five years to retirement, and it's going to be hard to make up $1.2 million so I can survive after retirement because they force, force retirement. And so he went on and he said, and then he philosophized. He says, You know, life is like baseball. Oh, how is that? I said, Well, when the batter gets up to bat, the pitcher's going to have a pitch he's going to pitch, and the pitcher is going to throw a fastball, but the batter may not know it. And he'll swing because sometimes the pitcher will throw a curveball. So he didn't know whether it's a fastball or a curveball. And when you're getting up there to swing the bat, if you knew what the pitch was going to be, you'd have a greater chance to hit it. But often you get pitches and you have no idea it's coming at you. And that's how I felt when I lost my $1.2 million. I had no idea that was coming at me. If I had known that, I would have done this, that, and the other thing. That would have saved all my money. But I didn't do those things and I lost it all. And if only I'd known what the pitch was, I could have saved $1.2 million. And man, anybody, you'd want to know what's going on before you lose $1.2 million. So he said that to me. And one of the things when I'm with him, is, and I encourage all of us to do this, he said, Lord, do I insert something about Jesus here? Because I don't want to come across as a religious nut to him and oh, all Dave ever wants to do is preach at me. Because I don't want him to feel that way. So there was a pause as he gave me his metaphor of life is like baseball. And then said, then there was this pause and I said, Jesus, now? And Jesus said, Yes. So I said, you know, Sam, that's why I'm, I don't want to go all religious on you right now, I said to him. That's why I, 
believe in Jesus. I said, Jesus knows whether it's going to be a fastball or a curveball. And we're all standing in that batter's box, and we don't know how, well, we don't, we don't, I hope I hit the ball. I hope I do something. I hope it doesn't blow the, I don't, we don't mess up the whole thing. But Jesus knows what ball's coming to me. And whether I swing and hit it or I swing and miss it, Jesus is still in control. Jesus knows all about that. Jesus is guiding me. I know that whatever happens in my life, if I lose $1.2 million or if I have a tragic accident riding on Santiago Canyon Road, Jesus is still there with me. He is controlling it. It's His power, His sovereign rule. And I may not like what He does, but I know that Jesus is alive and Jesus is going to take care of me. So I gave him that little pitch. I didn't do it quite like that, but I gave him that little pitch. And he said, for the first time in my life that I've heard from him, and we've talked numbers of times, he says, oh, that must be very comforting. I said, exactly. Exactly. He didn't want to go any further down that road, but it's the first softening. Because every time I ring up Jesus, ah, you know, gripe, complain, whatever. Because that must be very comforting. We find those moments where we bring Jesus and his power and control because he's still alive. He's still alive no matter what we're going through. He's still alive. And when God divinely tests our faith, he wants to teach us about our faith so that Jesus is there and his power controls us. To live under his his sovereign, powerful control is a sweet, sweet spot to be in. And that's where Jesus wants you and me to be. So he wants us to learn about his power, but then he also wants to learn about his purposes. That's what Jesus goes on, or the Holy, or the Holy Spirit, the angel, the dream tells him this. Here, let me help you understand why I'm doing what you're doing, why I'm turning your world upside down, Joseph. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is a purpose and a design behind this. I'm not just trying to mess up your life and make life miserable so you walk around all defeated. I want you to understand, you're going to raise and bear the son named Jesus. You're going to hold him in your hands after Mary gives birth. You're going to be responsible for that little baby growing up from age zero to age 30 until he dies on the cross because he's going to save people from their sins. Now all this took place to behold, fulfill the, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before, jo- before Joseph lived, Isaiah said this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means translated God with us. And if Joseph would remember hearing that verse, he would say to himself, God, you mean I'm the one that Isaiah was speaking of to be witnessing Emmanuel, God with us, in this little baby that's inside my wife Mary? I'm going to be the one you're going to use? This is amazing. He would be overwhelmed, blessed that God is allowing him to play such a role as that. That's Joseph. God loves to teach us that I don't waste these things. When I test you, I teach you, and then I reveal to you, here's what I'm up to. I don't want to leave you wondering and wondering and worried and anxious. I'm doing something. Patiently endure with me. Let me get you there. That's what God does. So He loves to teach us. I want to show you in a good uh, kind of a metaphor. I'm going to invite Peter and Jennifer Jonalite. They've been part of our missionary family for a number of years. They're going to be going back out again. There is a, a way to help us understand 
that God is still leading us. He's still um, teaching us. He's still guiding us. We have the Scriptures. Isaiah 7.14 is a great Scripture that teaches us what God wants us to know. But sometimes we have these in-between zones where this job, that home, that car, that spouse... Uh, that fiance, I, I, God, what's your will there? I can't go to the text. But the Spirit still wants to lead us. One of the great little pictures of leading and following to sort of illustrate how the Spirit of God wants to lead in our lives is through dance. Now, Peter and Jennifer are these uh, great dancers. They used to do this uh, an outreach event with swing dancing going on. So, Peter, help us to understand how dancing is much like the Spirit of God leading us in our spiritual yeah, it's, lives. It's a good analogy. Um, <clears throat> like all analogy, it breaks down at some point. But um, basically you have a leader and you have a follower. And if you both try to lead, you, you get chaos and it just doesn't happen. And uh, in the same way, there's, there's a certain amount of, of, of way that a, a leader leads correctly or best with a consistency, with a firmness, with a desire for the, the follower to, to make the most out of the dance and to enjoy themselves. And for the follower, you know, the more she can trust the lead, focus on the lead, pay attention to what he's trying to get her to do, the more she's able to understand, okay, I get it, I get it, you know, and, and you can do more things. You know, when you first start, you may be doing, um, you may be doing just like a little basic, you know, until, until she feels comfortable. Okay, I know what, I know what you got to do. Um, so as you progress, as you get more comfortable, as there's a trust that's built, as you learn to pay attention... Uh, you can do more and more things and be more and more dynamic in your dance. Um, and so it's, it, it could be a lot of fun and uh, a lot of things to learn. Also, the more that you dance together and you learn someone how they lead in their style, the more you can do as well. And then also the, the leader can allow more freedom to the follower so she can be more of herself, you know, be more individual and uh, because she knows what's going on. She knows that, hey, I've got a few beats here where I can kind of play with the music and things like that. And so a lot of fun analogies with dance. Uh, I wrote some notes on my hand here. Um, if you mess up and you, you, you lose the lead, uh, it's okay. You know, you jump back in. You get right back in it. The music's still going. You find the beat and you, you, you kick it back up. Um, and uh, see if, uh, yeah, the other thing you can do, and this is kind of fun, is, and Jennifer and I, we've been married for almost 14 years now, and we've been dancing in the kitchen since, since that time, and uh, now we have five kids, so it's a little bit, you got a lot of obstacles, so it means you got to be a little better than before, um, but we've actually had fun where we started to dance without actually touching each other, uh, where, so she has to follow just by watching me carefully. Uh, if she focuses on me, and she's watching my hand, she's watching my movement, uh, she can actually be led without any physical contact, which is kind of fun too. So we thought we'd give you a little demo here, just really brief because we know that you have other things to do. And uh, they're going to play some music for us, and we'll just give you a little demo. You can kind of watch. We didn't do anything too fast so you can see the lead. And I'm not going to put her in the air because it's a long way down these stairs, just, just in case. You know. So um, if you guys want to hit some music, and if Dave, you have any questions or thoughts, feel free to jump in. Feel free to clap. <laughs> we'll try to mess up for you guys, too. 
Anyways, this is an idea. So we'll start lessons. Uh, no, no, I'm just <laughs> Huh? If Jennifer, if Jennifer resisted you, would it knock you both down? I mean, can she resist you and fight you? And no, I'm not going to follow your lead. She can't. So she can't. Don't. And when we sometimes we teach couples, you'll get a, a, a spouse and she'll say, I, I just don't want to be led. I can't have him. You know, I just can't do that. And you're like, OK, well, here's the basic step. And you're going to be doing that the whole time. And because you can't do anything else beyond that. Yeah. And so sometimes you're just stuck. The more she can follow the more dynamic the moves you can do. And the more she trusts you, the more she That's wants right. to follow. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a consistent paying attention and yeah. following and following. And so, yeah. All right. Thanks, Peter. Sure. Appreciate that. You'll always remember the dance. Here's what I want you to want you to really remember, okay? That when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, He wants to lead us. He wants to set the lead. If I resist Him... It breaks down because God wants to teach me. If I resist Him, if I resist Him, I'm not going to be taught further. I need to yield and surrender to the Spirit of God to be able to accomplish those things that He has for me. Remember, God wants to test us to reveal our faith. Then God wants to teach us, teach us to deepen our faith. And the more I know about God, the more I'm willing to let Him lead me in my life. And that's what the Spirit of God wants us to know. And when he gets right down to it, the last thing we learn about Joseph is that therefore he still trusted and then obeyed. He let the Spirit of God lead him and fulfilled this calling in his life. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. That's just stunning to me. He was so yielded and so submissive and still so trusting that he wakes up and says, Oh, God, God, let's go for this thing. Virgin birth it is, and I'll keep her a virgin for the next year. And he goes to Mary's house, and he brings Mary into his house. He breaks all protocol of this thing. The neighborhood of Nazareth is a gasp, gossipers everywhere. How dare him bring this woman into his home before the one year up? And now we discover she's pregnant. He's living in this demise of all the breakdown of what people are likely saying about him. But he says, God, I don't care what people say. I'm going to obey you. That's righteousness. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the community says. I don't care what my friends say. I'm going to obey you. And you walk in faith and obedience to that truth. Much as like a lead in a dance, you allow the leadership of God to control you. And you live faithfully to that. And so as we go to worship now... I ask the question, in what area of your life do you need to trust and obey our Lord? Where is He seeking to lead you? And where do you need to yield to His leadership as well? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to worship. We have the cup and the bread. That's symbols. Those are symbols of the blood and the body of Jesus, the offering buckets. These are things that reflect our obedience to God, that we live in obedience and yielding to Him, trusting Him with our lives. So let's worship together. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your leadership in our lives. We need you. Lord, Joseph needed you. And you came and you divinely inserted yourself into his life in a powerful way so that we could learn simple lessons for us even here 2,000 years later. God, I pray that you would be our lead and that we would be those who follow you. Help us, Father. Impass to that. 
Help us to understand what you want us to learn through that and help us to continue to trust you through it. As we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.